the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, one of the things I uh, most appreciate about living in America and being an American is the uh, freedoms we have, especially within our legal system. I was just uh, speaking uh, with a member, a couple members of our church this past week, and uh, we were having a, a discussion and because we had differing views on politics. Now, I uh, ended the conversation by saying I'm your pastor, not your political analyst, and so we don't really need to go any further. But something that didn't occur to me ever during that conversation was that there was someone from the government listening in on our conversation with the sole purpose of finding who was against the government so that individual or individuals would be put in prison. And as sci-fi as that sounds, that is happening around the world even as I speak. That is a reality for many. As frustrating as it may be that uh, social media may cancel certain individuals or remove certain videos or posts, we don't have a government that shuts down the entire internet, as some would in our country or in the world today, in 2020, that is happening, and the CEO of that company disappears only to show up on public television a few years later, disheveled and emaciated to give a public apology, a public apology that even the most untrained ear in America would clearly see as written by the government, and yet the millions, if not billions, in that country think it's truly coming from the heart of that individual. Why? Because they've been brainwashed since birth. These are rights that we have as Americans, legal rights that are not promised in Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible are we told we would have the freedom to vote, the freedom of religion, the freedom to speak our minds. This is something God has graciously done for us. And yet with all things, all good things, especially freedoms, they can be used negatively. And one of the negatives of being in such a free country is that we live in a very litigious society. And one of the bigger issues of having such freedoms is the belief, the air of self-entitlement. Even if the contract says we're wrong, we demand that we are right and we want what is ours. And we don't just want payback, remuneration for the $102 that we lost. We want millions for emotional distress, emotional damage. We have an ordered society, an ordered legal system in this country. And because of that, so many take advantage no one really in the world will call it taking advantage because it is fully legal. And to take, demand that they are right even when they think they are wrong. I mean, think about it. How many fewer lawsuits would we have if the contract was just the contract and everyone went by it? Nah, but you know, I, I don't, that's not right anymore because this, this, and this. And even though it says there right above your signature that you are wrong, you demand that you are right. I mean, isn't that a lawsuit? Isn't that a dispute? There's at least two people involved, and both of them think they're right. If one of them thinks they're wrong, there would be no dispute. There would be no lawsuit. And this is the very issue that Paul is talking about in our passage this morning. In the second part of our series that we began last week, entitled Dealing with Disputes. And we saw last week that we are not to willingly, voluntarily put a secular judge who by his very vocation has to rule based on the law of the land and not on Christian principles or Christian character over us. 
Especially, Paul said in verses 1 through 6 of 1 Corinthians 6, especially when any spirit-led, scripture-filled believer should be able to deal with the situation, even those who are in the midst of that dispute should be able to settle it, if not, other Christians should. In other words, the situation should never have gone to that point in the first place, but if it does, others in this church should be able to handle it. And keep in mind, he is talking about Christian taking another Christian to what we would call civil or small claims court. This is not talking about the world. This is not talking about criminal court or crimes. This is in no way giving license to be disrespectful or disobedient to our government, which the Lord has put in place for our well-being. But when it comes to things like property and money and fighting over those things, the reason Paul says not to do it is because it is selfish. It focuses on money and it disregards God and His church and the fellowship and the unity that we have and we are to have. And Paul continues and explains even further what these lawsuits are in the context of the church. Look look with me at verses 7 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I want to give you this morning five motivations to avoid legal disputes. Five motivations to avoid legal disputes, specifically in the church, Christian to Christian. In other words, five principles regarding Christian lawsuits that will motivate us to avoid them, or simply five motivations to avoid legal disputes. We have a lot of text to cover, so... Let me jump right into the first motivation to avoid these disputes, legal disputes, is the pernicious, the pernicious or the detrimental, negative, evil outcome, the pernicious outcome. Let me read for you again verse 7 where Paul says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Remember, there was at that time of this writing to the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago already a lawsuit that Paul had heard of. This was probably a pattern or, or a habit within the church. There were other lawsuits that had taken place or perhaps were even taking place at that time. And what he's saying here in verse 7, in that context, it says he doesn't matter who wins the lawsuit. It doesn't matter what the legal verdict is. You've all already lost. To be clear, he's not saying that you've lost because the ruling will be unfair. He's not saying you've already lost because the judge has to rule for one against another, thus someone is defeated. No, he's saying the very fact that you have a lawsuit is a defeat. And we talked about this a lot last week. The word defeat is speaking of a moral and spiritual defeat, not a legal defeat. And again, we unpacked this a lot last week, so I won't go too much into it this morning. Here, although he's focusing on the two individuals in the lawsuit, most specifically probably the one who initiated the lawsuit. The rebuke, as we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians, is aimed at the whole church. You two did this, and you all let this happen. The reason this is a spiritual defeat in God's eyes is because for something to go so far as to be brought to a secular judge, to bring a secular judge into the picture... You're talking about already a a whole bunch of sin in terms of lack of forgiveness, a lack of love. We're not even just talking about the dispute itself, the fact that it gets to this point. See, the defeat isn't limited to those in the courtroom. 
the Christian dignity and honor. That is won through love and fellowship is harmed. It is lost to some degree. The reputation of the cause of Christ is affected. In other words, the whole of the church suffers when even two within a church of thousands are willing to go to court with one another. Ultimately, as we saw last week, this comes down to your priorities. And this is important. Your priorities, if they are wrong, are not just wrong if you go to court. Understand that if you have these wrong priorities, it's going to affect other areas of your life, courtroom or not. So do you prioritize financials, being right, winning, and personal gain? Or do you prioritize grace, love, fellowship, and God's glory, God's honor? Obviously, for the Christians, the latter is to be prioritized. The latter is the preferred option, which coincidentally is our second motivation to avoid legal disputes, the preferred option, the preferred option. He ends verse 7 with these two rhetorical questions. Why not rather be wronged and why not rather be defrauded? As he often does, Paul uses rhetorical questions to basically tell the church what they're supposed to do. Specifically, he says that the preferred option is to avoid a spiritual defeat by not being willing, or excuse me, by being willing to be wronged and defrauded instead of going to court. And this would allow for all that I just listed to be prioritized, love, grace, fellowship, God, as opposed to the alternative priority which, if you remember, is me, 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 and me. That's not what you said. Yes, it was. I want to win. Me. My money. Me. My priority. Me. I need to be right. Me. doesn't matter how I phrase it. It's me, 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 and me. And first he asked, why not rather be wronged or suffer wrong in some of your translations? Back in verse 1, he refers to unbelievers as unrighteous. Later in verse 9, he will use the same word to refer to those who do not inherit the kingdom of God, unrighteous. Why do I bring that up? The word wronged here in the Greek is the verb form of the word unrighteous. So you could say to be treated unrighteously, to be unrighteous. It's not a word, but you get the point. It's the verb form. So this really covers everything that harms or does injustice to another person. And the call, the call here is to be dealt an unjust hand, to be hurt in some way, and then that's the end of that. No gossip, no bitterness, no vengeance, no harboring resentment, chip on your shoulder for the rest of your life, leave the church, split the church whatever. If you are dealt an unjust hand, if you are treated poorly, hurt in some way, there cannot come to an amicable conclusion, then that's it. You're done. But today, in our society, we're wronged, and we don't ask for it. We demand. We demand an apology. Correct me if I'm wrong, lawyers, but sometimes that's in the lawsuit. I want a public apology. Or we pursue actions that will hurt them back. And you know what we really like? I just want to humble him. As believers, there should be a willingness to be wronged with no recourse. Paul goes further and says we should be willing to be defrauded. It means defraud, steal, deprive, take something through deception. The NIV, I like the NIV translation, cheated. Yes, Paul is essentially saying that it is better to allow yourself to be robbed than to sue a fellow Christian. 
Again, this word emphasizes that we're talking about some sort of financial property or business dealing in this lawsuit and the principle for us as well. This is not to say you don't talk to the person, you don't confront their sin, you, you don't say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but that was mine. Okay, you understand this. Not to be foolish or unloving in a other extreme. Still talk. But when he just fights back, then you just say, okay, I'm not going to take you to court. That's that. Why? Because we want love and fellowship to triumph. And to do this, we have to be willing to refuse to seek compensation or restitution. Otherwise, selfishness and money triumph, which reveal or reveals a moral deficiency in your life. And when we accept the wrong and defrauding, that reveals a moral success. And it shows that you understand and embrace and live out the wisdom of the cross. Speaking of the cross, as hard as this is, we must remember that Jesus said to not merely be okay with the wrong, but to turn the other cheek so they can slap that as well. If he wants to take your shirt, he says in Matthew 5, give him your coat also. We find some helpful principles in the following verses. 1 Peter 2.19, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Listen to Romans 12, 17 through 21. Never, not sometimes, not when the police say it's okay, not when the court says okay, not seek someone to tell you it's okay, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And although it may not be verbalized, one of the biggest threats to this sort of godly response, as I mentioned earlier, is the concept of rights. Well, legally, I have the right to get my money back by all means necessary. Oh, well, you don't know. that you, you don't understand. That's rightfully mine. Theologically, biblically, we have the right to burn in hell, and that's all. God has given you the right to burn for your sins, and that is all. Practically, though, let's talk about our greatest example, a man who truly did have rights and gave them up for the sake of others in the most extreme way. On the cross, Jesus gave up his rights including his right to pronounce condemnation on all of my, mankind right then and there. Snuff them out. At least the Jews and the Roman guards. And ironically, it was because of the condemnation incurred by sin that he gave up those rights that he might offer salvation to those who believe. And because of his example and call as believers, the foundation of life for us is not justice and rights as so much of our country literally burns to the ground for. No, we understand that the foundation to life is grounded in something deeper, something higher, something better. Better than rights, better than justice, better than social justice. What could that be? You know what it is. Grace. Grace. Because of this, you could say that the title for this point 
is not only the preferred option, it is the pious option. It is the Christ-like option. That is what He did. He gave us everything. You want to talk about rights. It's not just on the cross, on very existence, coming to earth as a man. He, you know what He had the right to do? He had the right to never be hungry because He never had been hungry before. He had the right to not thirst. He had the right to not feel pain. He had the right to not soil his diaper. He had the right to not have to have a digestive system where he had to use the bathroom and then get hungry and then feed his body again. He had the right to stay in heaven and reign. He willingly gave all of that up. Not for selfish reasons. I'm just, I really want to see what it's like down there. No, He did it to die for us. He had the right not to die. That's the preferred option. I know all of this is easier said than done. I know all of this is hard. But we look to Jesus. And if the foundation of life is grace, what better example than Jesus Christ Himself? Thirdly, the paradoxical offense. Paradoxical offense. Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Rather than a willingness to be wronged or defrauded as would be Christ-like by taking someone to court, you are the one wronging and defrauding. That's why it's paradoxical. Again, Paul emphasizes that doing it to a Christian brother or sister adds insult to injury. In the Greek, that two-word phrase, you yourselves, is one word, but it is emphatic, has emphasis on it, thus the English translation. The person, again, who is primarily in view here is the one who started all of this, who put, dragged that other person to court, but the emphatic you shows that Paul is referring to the church as a whole as well. Rather than suffer loss, they are inflicting harm and pursuing unrighteous behavior. Think about this. If you are sitting anywhere else right now and hearing these words, your jaw would drop to the floor. If you had one of those, uh, it shows how, how up-to-date I am with technology. It used to be a TiVo. You know, you can rewind live TV, right? I think it just comes in TVs these days or something like that, right? You would be rewinding over and over again I'll try to say this without laughing. Imagine Trump or Biden saying this to the other during a bait, debate. Eh, eh, you know, just going to suffer harm here. Not going to defend myself. Imagine your boss saying this to you. Imagine a victim of racism saying this to anyone. And imagine is the accurate word because you have to have a good imagination to picture this. It simply does not happen in this world. The way of the world is to get what's due and to give what's due. But for us, there's that itty-bitty factor that changes everything. Jesus Christ. By doing things the way the world would, which you understand is the way your human sin nature would, you violate again the principles of righteousness and love. So this is not paradoxical simply because as a plaintiff in a lawsuit, you're actually doing what you're accusing the defendant of doing wronging and defrauding, but it's also paradoxical because you are redeemed unto a new nature of righteousness and love. This is unbecoming of who you are. It is a paradox. Let me give you a fourth motivation to avoid legal disputes. The profane outsiders. The profane outsiders. We come to verses 9 and 10, and it seems that Paul is either going on a tangent or moving on to another topic. 
But contextually, he's still speaking of the dangers of lawsuits, and I'll explain how. First, let's read verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, first, Paul speaks of the kingdom of God and specifically the inheritance of it. As a general categorization, there are the righteous and the unrighteous. There are the believers and the unbelievers. And understand, when we talk about the righteous, we're not saying righteous because of our works, but be righteous because of the works of Jesus Christ. And this is not about what we do to earn salvation, because that's impossible. It's about what Christ has done. So, when he talks about those who will inherit the kingdom of God, the righteous, it is because of those who are in Christ. The unrighteous are those who are not. Those who are not, the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you need to understand that we believers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we must understand that word inherit. This is not merely saying that you're going to get to participate in it. You will inherit it. Because of Jesus Christ, it is rightfully ours. And in the same vein, because of Christ, we have been transformed and we live in a way in which our habitual actions, our character, are in line with the calling and character of Christ. Are we perfect? No. Are we characterized by habitual acts of righteousness, by God's strength? Yes. Are unbelievers perfect? No. Are they characterized by habitual acts of unrighteousness? or habitual acts of righteousness, rather? Impossible. Because the only way we can do it is because of Christ, because we are in Christ. Thus, the title for them, unrighteous. So, despite what the world may believe and even what certain religions may teach, these individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by their beliefs, their teachings, even in their good works. Paul gives a list, many of them we've seen already earlier in chapter 5. I'm just going to go through this quickly and focus on some of the ones we haven't seen already in 1 Corinthians. Fornicators, we saw this back in 5, 10, and 11. There it was the word immoral. Uh, we emphasized that it was the sexual immoral, uh, more to the point with the word fornicator. It's a blanket term for sexual immorality with an emphasis, but not limitation, on those who are unmarried or single. And we'll see the emphasis on the married in the, the, the word adulterer. The next word is idolater. You know this, follower of any false god or religious system, uh, more prevalent in ancient Rome and Greece than it would be uh, today. Adulterer. This is a married person who has sexual relations outside of the marriage, thus defiling the marriage bed. Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. And here he includes both for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The next two, effeminate and homosexuals, are both referring to homosexuality. That's why actually the ESV just combines them both into one word. You know what this is. It's simply anyone who exchanges the God-given and ordained male-female roles in such relationships. Much like today, this behavior spread like wildfire through the Greek and Roman cultures. I might add, if you would excuse a word, that this has evolved uh, over the centuries, especially recently thanks to modern science. So you need to understand that this includes anything that would fall within, for simplicity's sake, LGBTQ. Why two different words, effeminate and homosexual? Uh, it simply refers to the two different roles within such a relationship. I think that's all I need to say about that. If you want more specifics, you can talk to me afterwards. Moving into verse 10. 
Thieves and covetous are both related to the sin of greed. A covetous is someone who wants more and is willing to fulfill those desires through any means, meaning they want what others have, whether a specific individual John has, or just as a general principle, well, I know people have, and I want it. The thief, then, is some, someone who will actually go and take it from someone else. Drunkard, excessive indulgence in alcohol and frequent intoxication. You know what this is. I do want to note, though, that this is not just someone who would be classified in our society as an alcoholic. This can be someone who is not an actual alcoholic, per se, but gets drunk every other Friday night or whatever it may be, parties with, with the with the boys, with the girls. Reviler is next. We saw this in depth a few weeks ago. It's someone who uses abusive language to harm others. They destroy with their tongues. It's a reflection of what's in their heart, which is a hatred so profound and unchecked that it causes pain and misery for others. Even their own reputation, Even the other sin of the fear of man does not keep them from expressing these things, which explains why it's on this list. Swindler, we also have seen before, it's someone who uses force and violence or manipulation in their theft. And so when I say manipulation, I don't want you to just picture a mugger in a dark alley who will either use violence or threaten violence That's obviously part of it, but it's not limited to that, especially in this modern age. A swindler, to be very specific, would include people like Bernie Madoff or Kenneth Lay and Jeff Skilling of Enron. So a swindler would include those who steal indirectly, take advantage of others for their own gain, extortionists, embezzlers, even false advertisers, even the people who call you saying that you've won money or or gotten an inheritance or need to send them gift cards to pay off your taxes, scammers, people who get on eBay or Amazon who promote fake or defective goods and services. These are all swindlers. And again, Paul says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think it goes without saying, but just to be clear, we are talking about the unrepentant. We are talking about unbelievers who are unrepentant unto Christ. And I should also add that even if they change these behaviors without Christ, they are still not inheriting the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And to be clear also, if you truly are a Christian, it doesn't mean if you commit one of these sins, if you drink too much and get drunk, if you have an affair that you just lose your salvation because you can't lose your salvation. Now again, it's true that no unbeliever will inherit the kingdom of God, not just those who fall in these categories. In other words, the agnostic heterosexual, faithful husband who has never gone drunk in his life, has not stolen a penny in his life, but does not know Jesus Christ will not inherit the kingdom of God, the upright citizen. So why the list? Why doesn't he just say unbelievers? Why give us this list? And here's where we connect it back to the context of lawsuits. This is very convicting. Paul uses this list to emphasize those at the height of unrighteous behavior to point out that when a Christian takes another Christian to court, he is living like those on this list. You're not just living like any old upright citizen non-Christian. You are living like those on this list. And in case it has not yet occurred to you how bad it is to take another Christian to court, if by some active suppression of the Holy Spirit's conviction and the truth of the Scriptures, you still think it's okay, read that list again. When you pursue such lawsuits, you are living like them. 
And remember, Paul is talking to people currently in the middle of a lawsuit. So to them, he's saying, why are you living like them right now? And the will not inherit the kingdom of God part, again, reminds us of how vastly different we are than the world. And that leads us to our fifth motivation to avoid legal disputes, the powerful ordination. The powerful ordination. We've seen the pernicious outcome of the preferred or pious option, the paradoxical offense, the profane outsiders, and lastly, the powerful ordination. Look at this, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Not referring to the lawsuits, he's referring to that list that he just wrote. He says, I know, some of you used to do this kind of stuff. Paul used to be, Saul used to do a lot of this stuff before you were a Christian. And he's saying, that's okay. That's okay. God has forgiven you. He doesn't count those things against you. Because he doesn't judge you based on the past. He doesn't weigh a lifetime of good and bad works. He just weighs the works of Christ. That's it. And this is explained in the rest of the verse. All of these things that God has done for us took place in the past, once for all. This is accurate the grammatical translation here, because in the Greek, it's in the past, it's done. Not you are being, not you will be, not you might have been, you were washed, sanctified, justified. It's done. First, you were washed. You were thoroughly cleansed of your sin and the objective guilt of them. This is speaking of our new life of regeneration. You are a new creature. It's done. Washed clean. Perfectly cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Does that mean you're perfect? No. Does that mean you no longer sin? No. But you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of that was washed away. It was taken care of on the cross. You, you are no longer a slave to sin. You, you no longer need to do those things. We do those things. We still want to do those things, but you don't need to do those things as you once did. There's nothing God forgot in the washing. He got behind the ears. He got all the, as I tell my kids, the crevices. There's nothing hidden that He missed. Next, you are sanctified. This is not talking about the continuing process of spiritual growth or sanctification that is still ongoing in all believers. You just become holier and holier. This is the past act of sanctification, which means being set apart from sin to God. In other words, made holy, claimed by God to belong to His family. You're no longer on their team. You're on His team, member of His holy people completely set apart, sanctified. By the way, again, this is permanent. You won't be offered another contract. You won't be traded to another team. You won't retire from the game. Thirdly, you are justified. Literally declared right or righteous. Cleared of every charge. Regardless of your past, you now have a new standing before God. (laughs) Regardless of your present, you have a new standing before God. Justified by faith alone. It's not the works of Christ plus your works. It's not, yes, believe in Jesus Christ and do good 
and you can earn your way. Justified, it's done. Faith alone. If you're justified, you're going to heaven. And all of this, he says, was done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen this before recently. The word name represents all that he is and all that he has done. It is his will, his power, his work, his being. In other words, it's not about how good you are. It's not about earning your ticket to heaven. It's all done in the past, once for all, by Christ and Christ alone. In other words, if you have confessed with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you have been, past tense, once for all, been saved. Romans 10.9. Back to the context. You have been removed from among the wicked and will inherit the kingdom of God. So live out your new life in Christ and stop acting like the wicked by bringing other Christians to court. Now understand, I believe I mentioned this at the end of last week's sermon. We're not off the hook, so to speak, because we're just not lawsuit-type people. Because you, even when you're an unbeliever, this is just not something you would do. It's about the bigger picture. It's about what led these people and many others to have lawsuits in the first place. Again, it's about loving. It's about pursuing righteousness. It's about living out and exemplifying and experiencing the grace of God most profoundly exhibited on the cross and in salvation. So it's not just lawsuits. Now understand, that's, that's really bad, right, to get to that degree, and that's the comparison to all those types of wickedness. But in general, we are not to live like the world. We are not to live like the wicked, and so it doesn't matter if it's a lawsuit or if it's anger or if it's jealousy or if it's whatever, it is still an issue of a lack of righteousness, love, and grace, and fellowship, and all of those things. I mean, I appeal to Matthew 5 again. Jesus didn't say, turn the other cheek in a lawsuit. He didn't say, when he wants to go with you a mile, go with him too. When he threatens to take you to court, he says as a general principle, this is who you are now. This is who you are to be. And these, these general principles need to permeate every aspect of our lives. Again, there's a place for lawsuits. Don't you dare ignore criminal activity and not get the law involved. That's why God put them there specifically. It says that. Right? To be a sword. We, we have a system. And again, this is, this is, ours is far from imperfect. Or far from perfect, I should say. But even that phrase in describing our system of government, no one even would use that phrase in probably half or more of the countries in this world because it's not even close. It's even that, that analogy would not even work to them. It's a dictatorship. It, it, it's oppressive. You, know, you hear about Christians being beheaded. That's legal in their country. This isn't people hiding in basements doing it. That's legal. For some of these countries, it would be illegal for them not to. You understand? But we live in a place, a country where we have a system of law that God has put in place. Aren't you happy about that? Uh, yeah, sure, you're not happy about that ticket you got this morning on the way to church because you were late. But aren't you happy that you can live relatively in peace, sleeping at night? Sure, you lock your doors. Some of you don't. But why do we do that? Be because. Because there's no sin? No, there's sin. 
There's thieves, there's bad guys, there's human traffickers, there's all kinds of gross stuff out there. But there's also police, and there's deterrents like prisons, judges, government. There are places where it would be appropriate too, and where you do need to get your money back from a company that cheated you, for example. Hopefully this never happens in our church, but a divorce settlement would be appropriate. Again, your heart attitude has to be right in that. There are certain contracts where you have no choice but to go to court. There are certain situations where, again, because our society has become so litigious that you are required to go to court to settle this. Those aren't things that we're talking about. Okay? I want to be very clear about that, especially about that, the criminal activity. I said it last week, and I'll say it again today. If you come to me and tell me that someone in our church, or, or, or more specifically, someone in your family has committed a crime, and you say, Pastor, how are we as a church going to deal with it? I will say, I'm going to deal with it by calling the cops. I don't care that he's a member of our church. If he's committed a crime, he goes to jail. I cannot live with you and protect you from an abusive spouse. But the police can take him away, and that's what they should do. Again, we're not talking about those situations. And on the other end of the spectrum, we're not just talking about Christian to Christian on issues that are $100 or less, $1,000 or less. What's the, the limit for small claims court? 7000 something like that? 700 10000 Even if it's over 10000 whatever it is, this still applies. Don't do it. Suffer wrong. Be defrauded. And again, it's not because God wants us to curl up in a ball and just be cowards in the world's eyes? No. It's love and righteousness. Have you noticed that so much that the world, that we wouldn't because we understood what he did. But you understand that how much of what Christians do and more specifically how much of what Christ did, especially in his context, was cultural cowardice? Yeah, but he died on the cross. Thousands of people did. It wasn't unique to him. It was un- his situation was unique. You understand. But he's not the only person in history who was crucified. Speak up, Jesus. Come on. I mean, even the authorities were like, aren't you going to say anything? Defend yourself. Come on. And yet in fulfillment of prophecy, an example to us, he uttered not a word like a lamb led to slaughter. The world calls that cowardice. You try it. I tell my boys this all the time. Tempers are flaring. What takes more strength and resolve? To just start swinging or to hold your tongue and walk away? I think we've all been there in that temptation of anger. And you know how exponentially more brave and powerful you need to be to hold your tongue, put your hands in your pocket, and walk away. It's easy to throw punches. It's easy to denounce. It's easy to criticize and humble other people. And the smarter you are, the better you are at it because you can outwit them with put-downs. Take strength to shut up and walk away. These are the principles for us. Yes, lawsuits, that's what Paul's talking about, but don't ignore the principles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this clear teaching on lawsuits 
we're thankful for just even the specific context, especially in our culture, we could be so confused. We have been confused about what's okay in your eyes and what's not okay. And so we're thankful that you have made it so clear about what situations and what kinds of lawsuits are unacceptable. But more importantly, Father, thank you for the clarity on who you want us to be, why lawsuits are bad. I pray that we wouldn't be people who just look at things like what we say or lawsuits or amounts of money or possessions or things like that, but we always go beyond the actions and look at the heart. Fix our hearts, Lord. Help us to just slay any sin that is in our hearts. Lawsuits are now. Remove the pride, the selfishness, the desire to be right. Help us to be not just prioritizing being salt and light, but prioritizing honoring and glorifying you and being salt and light, we understand, will naturally flow. Help us to deal uh, with uh, uh, our hearts and let you handle whatever publicity, as it were, in terms of our testimony in our church. Help us to, like Fanny Crosby, rejoice for we are redeemed. May we be those who love to proclaim it, not just with our evangelism, but with our wholehearted commitment to you. Give us wisdom, Lord, as we navigate these biblical principles and how to biblically and lovingly but rightly deal with various movements and groups in our nation that use words like love and justice but may not have a biblical definition of those things. Help us to navigate those things to your glory. Let our participation, should you lead us that way, be always done with other salvation and your glory in mind. In Jesus' name.